Well, if you would, turn to Philippians chapter 3. That's our journey. This text, uh, I even mentioned this in the email I sent out, it's one of the most remarkable personal confessions that the ancient world has bequeathed to us, and there's no doubt about that. As we go to this text, as you turn to Philippians 3, uh, we're going to be announcing some things I think are pretty exciting as a ministry. Obviously, we're going to continue this men's Bible study on Thursdays, but in the fall of 2020, we're looking to do a men's luncheon Bible study downtown. So if you're, you know some space or you, you know some folks or you yourself would like to be interested in helping with that, let us know. We just have a lot of millennials who are saying, you know, I can't come at 7 o'clock in the morning. I've got kids and I've got to be downtown to work. Why don't you do something downtown? So that's what we're looking to do. We're also looking to launch a women's Bible study in the fall of 2020. And I'm really excited. I won't be teaching that. I'm really excited about who we have lined up for that. And we'll be announcing that as well. So just stay tuned. Uh, it's exciting to see what God is doing and even in our midst on a Thursday morning. So I just want to thank the board for all they do. Yeah. Oh, and we have a Bible. Uh, it's not, it's somebody's rock. <laughs> rock. So, I'm telling you. <laughs> I know. All right. So there's your Bible. So you can turn to Philippians chapter 3. That's where we are. This is a rich text. Uh, and there's no doubt about it. And as uh, the one scholar, Leonard, has stated, um, it, it, it's, Paul kind of pulls back uh, the sheet and lets you see his inner heart. And it's pretty amazing. So let's look at this. Chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, which is a transitional word. In other words, it's based on all that I've talked about, let me take you to this. He says, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Now we're going to look at the theology of joy later in chapter 4. But uh, we've seen this word already, but we've never seen it with the prepositional phrase, in the Lord. And what he's talking about is that union you have, that relationship with you have with Christ. To write this again is no trouble to me, and it's a safeguard for you. And then he fires off three groups, or probably three descriptors of the same group. Beware of the dogs, uh, which is a very derogatory term in the first century. Dogs were not a common household pet like Bobo is today. Uh, and, and even in Israel today, some see, still see dogs as a very unclean animal. Beware of the evil workers. Uh, I think I'd put my next-door neighbor's dog into that category as well, but we won't go there. Uh, if it barks much longer, it's going to meet its maker. But anyway, beware of the evil workers. That's the owners of the dog. Uh, beware of those who mutilate the flesh. Uh, he's referring to circumcision, all right? Uh, and we'll talk about this, uh, but he uses a very graphic term. And they're just, you know, they're tearing everything in, in, its, in its path because he will then use the correct word or the normal word we would think of for circumcision in verse 3. For we are the circumcision, the ones who worship in the Spirit of God and boast in Christ Jesus or exalt Christ Jesus and do not rely on human credentials though mine are very significant. <laughs> now watch what he does. If someone thinks he's good reason to put confidence in human credentials, I have more. In other words, if someone wants to boast, <laughs> I can boast. Let's go here. Let me show you what I got. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. You're going, wow, thank you. I didn't need to know that. Uh, we'll explain why he should highlight that. <clears throat> From the people of Israel and the tribe of Benjamin, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. I lived according to the laws of Pharisee in my zeal, and that is a loaded term. It's used of only two Old Testament characters in, the, in Josephus. He refers to Phineas. Remember what Phineas did? 
to the couple who shouldn't be doing what they were doing outside the tabernacle, Phineas killed them. And it's used of Elijah when he killed the 400-some prophets. It's used also of a, of a Jewish sect in the first century. We call them the zealots. Yeah, the zealots or zealots. And, and that is the uh, terrorist group of the first century, right? So when he says, I'm zealous, that is a loaded term. It doesn't mean he was just giving out tracts for Judaism. Uh, remember, whose cloaks did they put when they went to stone Stephen? The cloaks, the outer coats were laid at whose feet? Saul. Well, then becomes Paul, right? And who leads the charge into Damascus? It's Saul, later Paul. According to the righteousness that was stipulated in the law, I was blameless. But, he says, these assets have come to regard as liabilities because of Christ. More than that, I now regard all things as liabilities compared to the far greater value of, and here it is, knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. It's all been about I. He now moves into Christ, and um, five times now in these next verses we're going to read, he mentions Christ. So he's take this is what I've done, this is what Christ has done. So look what he says. <clears throat> indeed, I regard them, he says, all of these things as lost. Indeed, I regard them as dung. Uh, my first Greek, first year Greek students loved that term, and I said, listen, <laughs> it is a very vulgar term. I said, no, no, we're not going to use that in class. Um, Paul uses it here for emphasis, but it is a, you know... Uh, yeah, yeah, it's a four-letter word, there's no doubt. That I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not because I have my own righteousness derived from the law, but because I have the righteousness that comes by the way of Christ's faithfulness. And you may have faith in Christ, and we'll talk about that in a minute in your English version. A righteousness from God that is in fact based on Christ's faithfulness. My aim is to know Him, or he repeated that in verse 8, right? to experience the power of His resurrection, to share in His sufferings, yikes, and to be like Him in His death, and so somehow to obtain to the resurrection from the dead. Let's unpack this very powerful segment nestled here in the middle of the epistle as we look at this. Uh, his call to rejoice, this is under letter A of your notes, is this opening remark, is setting the scene. And he does this by noting what <clears throat> he says, listen, your rejoicing is going to stem a little bit from what I've already written to you, and scholars debate the this, this demonstrative pronoun. What is he referring to? And I, I mentioned there Garland and his uh, notes on this. He believes what we're dealing with is the, the this is about what he's going to highlight here shortly, but it's what he taught them when he was in Philippi. And that is, as you see in your notes, the condemnation of Jewish Boasting of superiority, his reminiscence about his life is devout. I mean, all that he's about to highlight in the next several verses, uh, he's telling me, telling us, I, I'm repeating, this is what I've told you before, and I'm, I'm stating it again. And in this opening as well, he wants us to recognize there are many who are going to try to downplay what he has taught. And again, there are three terms that he throws out here. This group, <clears throat> uh, excuse me, are, is most likely a Jewish group, which we would refer to as Judaizers elsewhere, and that is they've come along and said, you got the gospel that Paul's preaching, it's insufficient. You need to do the practices of Judaism in order to be saved, in order to be declared righteous. 
Uh, it's very legalistic, isn't it, in its approach. And, and so one of the big issues, <clears throat> excuse me, they'd come along and say to Gentiles, you need to be circumcised, right? Which uh, I think I just like that salvation is free, right? Uh, at, at 40, I don't think I'd want to be, or 50, I don't want to be circumcised. The point is there, <clears throat> right? They're coming along and Paul says, they want you to be circumcised. They're actually, we are the circumcised ones. We are the ones that have what is true. And as I mentioned there in your notes, what he's talking about is, is obviously the worship and resting in Christ's work. As one commentator states, it's there in your notes, the intent of the ensuing argument is that Christian salvation, Christian conduct, and Christian pro progress are all the products of God's free, undeserved grace and not of human achievement. If you can get your mind wrapped around that, that is huge. The spiritual life, is, thankfully, is not something we need to work, uh, be concerned that if we don't do X, Y, and Z, we're not going to obtain. It's, it's because it's based on what Christ has done and what Christ is doing through us. And that's what Paul is going to highlight. And what the Judaizers are saying is you, you follow all of these rules, you're going to be righteous. And he goes, no, 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 no. And so he, he then goes from here, to, springs right into the idea, well, you want to talk about credentials? Here's what I can boast about. And let's just unpack these because this is key. <clears throat> Playing off of circumcision, he says, well, I've been circumcised on the eighth day. Remember when Christ Jesus was uh, circumcised? It was on the eighth day, the text tells us. Why? Because that was, demanded, that was commanded by the law. It indicated that we have a very devout family that... Uh, Paul grew up in. And by the way, uh, where was Paul born? Jerusalem? Tarsus, which is up right there in Turkey and Syria today. In other words, he's not a local yokel, right? However, Paul tells us that early on his parents sent him to Jerusalem. He studied of the Ivy League of the day. We'll talk a little bit about that. But that tells us that Saul, later Paul's family, had a lot of wealth, but they had not assimilated to the Hellenistic world in which they lived. They were very devout, very orthodox, right? So it's similar today if you were to go in certain parts of Indianapolis, more so New York City, and you saw uh, the black cur you know, the curls with the black hats, etc. They're not going to assimilate. They're, they're maintaining their orthodoxy. And that's the idea here. He says, I grew up in that upbringing. In fact, he highlights, not only am I Jewish, but I know I'm from the tribe of Benjamin, which was also very significant. This is the only son of Jacob born in the promised land. Benjamin, what else do we know about the tribe of Benjamin? King Saul, the first king of Israel, was from which tribe? Benjamin. Mordecai, who saved the Jews, and Esther, right? Along with Esther. Uh, was from the tribe of Benjamin. They're also the only tribe that stuck with Judah when the country divided. Uh, the tribe of Benjamin has, uh, is held in high esteem. I know they have their own some problems in the Old Testament. We won't go there. But by the New Testament era, they're, they're held in, as, as one very important tribe. This isn't the tribe of Dan <laughs> or some obscure tribe like Asher. Uh, no, this is a very significant tribe. And he says, that's my lineage. I know that. 
He said, third, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. Now, this seems rather, I mean, are you stuttering, Paul? What do you mean by that? We know there were two large groups of Jews in the first century. You had the Juju, those that lived and were raised in Palestine. They spoke Aramaic as a native tongue. And then you had Hellenistic Jews. Those uh, Aramaic, if they could speak it, was a second language. Uh, Greek was their first language. All right. And remember the tension in the first century? Uh, Church in Acts was to care for the Hellenistic uh, widows, right? uh, Because there was a bit of a uh, superiority with the Hebrew of Hebrews, those that could speak Aramaic. And I want you to turn to a scene. Turn to Acts 22. Th- this just tells you how significant this is, right? Acts 22, verse 2. If you remember, Paul is arrested. In fact, it says in verse 39 of 21 of Acts, Acts 22. One verse 39, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Sicily, a citizen of an important city, and that it was. Even ancient historians said this, you know, uh, they wouldn't dare send their kids to college in Sicily because they wouldn't study. There was too many distractions. <laughs> and he says, I'm from that city, but please allow me to speak to the people. And the commanding officer gave permission. Paul stood up and it says he gestured to the people in hand. When they had become silent, he addressed them in Aramaic. Right? They were, they were, say, in Scotland, they were gobsmacked. You're speaking our local language, which gave him credibility. And he says, listen, yeah, I might have been born in Tarsus, but don't you forget, uh, you know, I'm from a very devout family, and, and we learned Aramaic in the home, and I was raised... In fact, he will go on to state in Acts 22, there he says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus, he'll repeat this, been brought up in this city, what city is it? Jerusalem, educated with strictness under Gamaliel, according to the law of our ancestors, and he even says, I was zealous for the Lord. He says, I studied with Gamaliel, and that leads us to the next thing here, as we look at this, the first three, by the way, were credentials of being born, the next three are things that he did, he says, I was a Pharisee. Gamaliel was a Pharisee, and he wasn't just any rabbi. In Acts chapter 5, there's dissension in the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the Jewish, I don't know if you want to call it like the Congress of the day in the first century. They were the Jewish ruling body, and it was made up of two Jewish uh, sects. You've got the Pharisees, who were extremely devout, orthodox, right? And you had the Sadducees, who, well, Pharisees, their power base was from the people, they were loved. I know Jesus has the most uh, pointed rhetoric directed towards Pharisees, but Pharisees were the, the their power base was their popula- popularity with the people. And it was also a large sect. There was about 5,000 plus Pharisees in the first century. The Sadducees, their power base was Rome. They were very wealthy and very non-religious, really. They controlled the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, all right, so they're in charge. Gamaliel is a Pharisee. But in Acts chapter 5, it says, when Gamaliel speaks at the Sanhedrin, everyone grows quiet. He's highly respected, even among the Sadducees. And the Mishnah, written in 250 AD, codified oral law of the Pharisees, states, and it lists some very prominent rabbi. They said, when Gamaliel died, 
the glory of the Torah died. And Paul says, I was his prized student. I believe Paul would have had a seat on the Sanhedrin. Just give him a little more time because uh, it's like our Supreme Court. You, you don't have a vacancy unless someone croaks, all right? Uh, and so if someone had died, but Paul says, I was rising from the ranks and I studied with the best of the best. So I think he was, he was, he says, this, this is where I was? You want to talk about devout? You want to talk about powerful? That's, who did they send the charge to lead into Damascus? Saul. So it tells you his influence. Yeah. How many Sadducees, uh, that I don't know. I want to say a few hundred, but don't quote me on that one. Yeah, but the high priesthood was purchased in the first century. So Annas, you know, who we read of in Scripture, was extremely wealthy and extremely powerful. He will be a high priest. Three of his sons will be a high priest in the first century, and his son-in-law, Caiaphas, will be a high priest. So loaded, absolutely loaded. I can take you to Jerusalem. You go three stories underground, and I can show you a villa that's 12,000 square foot home in the first century owned by the Sadducean families. So very, very wealthy. That's large even for Carmel. Anyway, on we go, right? Lived as a Pharisee. He's persecuted the church. He tells us that. We've talked about that. So I'm going to move on ahead, and you, you, you can go. You, know, you think about this. Paul chucks all this I mean, humanly speaking, he has everything you'd want. The one thing he doesn't mention here is his Roman citizenship, which very few Jews had in the first century, and we know he inherited the Roman citizenship. So he didn't obtain it because he did something great for an emperor, or he was, you know, had a bribe. No, no, no. He was born a Roman citizen, which was extremely significant. But that's a whole other side note. And again, it says, according to the law, I was blameless. You say, wait a minute. How can you say that? Well, remember the rich young ruler? In Luke chapter 18, I even mentioned it there. He says, you know, I, I've done everything to keep the law. Exterior, they look great. But it's a heart issue, isn't it? That's what Jesus goes with the rich young ruler. Well, if that's the case, let's do this. And, and Paul says, you want to brag? Look at my credentials. I studied Ivy League. I studied with the best of the best. Uh, you find any fault in me, you won't. I mean, I, I, I am, I've got it all together. And he says, I count it all loss, which is amazing. Right? Yeah, Rock. Uh, how old is Paul at this time? How old is Paul? Uh, I don't know. Uh, someone may want to talk about it. He has to be at least 40. Uh, to be to, to rise among the ranks of Pharisee and to be a leader, uh, the Mishnah has some rules on how old you can be before you can start to serve in leadership in the in the religious circles, etc. So, um, forty was a bare minimum age. Gives me comfort, right? <laughs> anyway, we won't go there. <clears throat> Getting too old. Well, I had a question in your notes. I even got a gap. <clears throat> how is it that these? Very prestigious credentials. Many, I mean, uh, I, I'm, yay for keeping the law. That's great. Why would he count this all as harmful or, as he says, a liability here in the text? How could he say that? Help us out. He yep. understands that religion can't save us. He's encountered Christ and knows it's all about a relationship. Not religion. Certainly not by works. 
and I, I, I was talking to John Lieberman here before the, this hour. Can you imagine telling a group of Pharisees, uh, all you did is useless? Imagine doing that, telling a rabbi uh, today, you know, who've dedicated hours and hours of their life to, to studying the, 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 the Jewish writings and the Torah, etc. Well, yeah. the, the Jewish law in, in general is very legalistic, and what Christ is looking for is your heart. The Jewish law was interpreted, I would argue, legalistically. I would argue the, the law actually was trying to show you you needed a Savior, and you couldn't do it, but yes, uh, and the Lord even comments, remember it later in the, the prophets, you did all the sacrifice, etc. What I wanted was your heart, right? Let, let, me, let me just give you a few things. I, I, I wrote down, these credentials result in pride rather than humility, right? Find me a good legalist. X, I did, I've done this. I've, I mean, did you catch all the eyes in, the, in these verses? So if you want to talk about both, I did this, I had this, I was this. Uh, yeah, th that's the danger. Here's another danger. These credentials distract from what the Lord desires most, which you just highlighted was a pure heart. These credentials fail to keep him dependent on the Lord. That's one of the greatest dangers of legalism in the church, I believe, is that we no longer need the Lord. Look what I can do for him, etc. It's a dangerous thing to fall into. And then finally, overlapping this, but these credentials eclipse the need for Jesus. If, if I can be righteous, why do I need his righteousness? <laughs> and, and that's the lie ultimately from Satan. Is he not apologizing for himself? Well, for his, past his high. Well, in one sense, he is because he's, he's at the end of the day, he says it's all, it's all scubula. It's all. Manure, right? All of this is a pile of poop. <laughs> it has no value. In the grand scheme, I did all of this. And he's saying none of this, this matters when it comes to Christ. Verse 7, right? These assets I have come to regard as liabilities because of Christ. In fact, he then goes on to say, in case I missed anything, all that I have from life, when it's compared to knowing Christ, is useless. Right? And that's where I think he's throwing in the Roman citizenship because the folks at Philippi would be very aware that he was a Roman citizen. Born on the right side of the tracks, gone to the Ivy League schools, extremely wealthy, extremely powerful, all that the society would want. And, and Paul says, I count it all loss. This is something he stated to the elders from Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, which is a very powerful scene. You want to re read that section. It says, this... It's all lost for the cause of Christ, right? All these things that we want to latch onto, and he says, none of this matters. My identity is not because of a job I have or my hobbies or my family. My identity is Christ, and that's an amazing statement. Well, let's go on. Look what he says here then, because he's, he's, he's given the things that he could boast in, but he moves to this scene... To, to talk about what he does boast in, and that is in the righteousness of Christ. Did you see this? He goes, the value of knowing him, and, and that's an overarching idea that, that grabs the next several verses, and it's restated in various ways, but 
he says that I may gain Christ and be found in him. The idea of knowing him, being found in him, it's the same idea because I have my own, not because I have my own righteousness derived from the law, which he was trying to obtain, right? But because I have the righteousness that comes through the Lord. Let's look at this because this is powerful. And if you're reading any commentary on this, they spent a lot of ink addressing this clause, faith in Christ or the faith of Christ. Uh, There's a big difference there, isn't there? Did you catch that? Faith in Christ. How many of you have that in your English version? Uh, Several of you do. Or the faithfulness of Christ, which is how I believe the genitive clause, as we say in the Greek there, the grammatical construction, lends itself to the idea what Paul's talking about is Christ's faithfulness, not our faith in Him. Now, he'll talk about faith, right? Ephesians 2, uh, the the emphasis of placing our faith in the Lord. But what he's trying to stress here, it fits with the context. And by the way, it fits also with the Pauline construction when he uses faith uh, in something. What he's highlighted everything that humanly I can do. He now turns us to what Christ has done. It's Christ's faithfulness that has allowed me to be righteous. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is a powerful text. And um, I'm not going to go down a theological debate, but uh, there has been a movement in Christendom among evangelicals called the New Perspective on Paul that would argue that you are not righteous until the end, which sounds a lot like Roman Catholicism. This verse in 521, I believe, creates great consternation for them. It gives them gas, all right? Because it says in verse 21, God made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him, what? We would become the righteousness of God. In other words, if you've placed your faith, if there's a point where you said, Lord, I need you as a Savior, I am a sinner, and you've confessed that and you've turned your life over to Him, at that point, when God sees you, He sees the righteousness of His Son. That is huge, right? And Paul says, no wonder, all the stuff I was trying to obtain, it's all been done what Christ has done for me. Notice that, right? He says, it's what Christ has accomplished. So go back to the notes and let's look at this, that it's faith in Christ and the origin of it is ultimately from God himself. In 2 Corinthians 5, the text I just read is a case in point for this. So, so it's not through a particular upbringing, it's not through moral behavior, it's because of what Christ has accomplished via what God has allowed, that I have become, if I've placed my faith in the Lord, His righteousness. And so, in verse 9, the latter part, he says, it's a righteousness from God that is in fact based on, and I translate it just like the Net Bible does again, that it is Christ faithfulness. Now, I'm not going to lose sleep if you say it's faith in Christ, but I, I, I don't see that. I don't think it fits the context. I don't think it fits uh, Paul's norma, normal use of what he's trying to talk about. It's what Christ has done through his faith that we are seen as righteous. Does that make sense? You don't have to agree. Uh, when you get to heaven, you'll see you were wrong. But anyway, oh, that's awful. Uh, yes, yes, yes. No, um, I do have real issue, though, with those who are saying our righteousness is not obtained until we are finally glorified. Uh, no, no, no. Uh, then works are part of the equation, in my opinion. 
that I have to do X, Y, Z in order to get this righteousness. No, you're righteous because of what Christ has accomplished. The sin has been paid for. All right? And, and then he, he's not done. He says, because of this, he says, my aim is to know him. He comes back to this, and he gives us three things. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I highlight there in your notes, I think what we're dealing with is the life-giving power of the Lord. Uh, Hawthorne writes, Paul is not content merely to know Christ as a fact of history, but to know him personally as the resurrected, ever-living Lord of his life. Did you notice, by the way, Paul's on a journey in the knowing? And if he needs to say that, all the more confidence does. I don't know about you. It is his, you know, you put him up to a monitor, it's going to say, wanting to know Christ, wanting to know Christ. It's the heartbeat, right, of what he desires to do, is to know him. And, and, and again, it's the power of his resurrection. Secondly, and this was a hard one to swallow, Sharon is suffering. Um, it's been a little bit of a rough week um, on some fronts. And my wife and I, I said, well, the Lord's just trying to teach us this text <laughs> further. It is in, it being involved in, in the sufferings and, and being involved. Look at Romans 8. Just took, turn to this. Romans 8. Look at this passage. It's powerful. It's always a bummer when you have to teach or preach a text because the Lord's Figures you probably should learn a little of it before you espouse it, right? Uh, yes, I wish I'd just learned the first time. But Romans eight seventeen: If children, then heirs, namely heirs of God, and also follow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with Him, so we will be glorified with Him. It's part of the equation, right? And Paul says, "I long for that." To, to be identified with his sufferings. And in 1 Thessalonians, he says, hey, this is expected. I don't know what you thought you were going to get when you turn your life over to Christ, but you're being identified with him. And he told you you were going to suffer for his name. It's, it's living out those woes as we look to vindication down the road when Christ returns. And finally says, if that's not enough, to be like him in his death. <laughs> right? One scholar writes, it's in your notes, Kim. He states, the life of discipleship which involves our participation in Christ's sufferings and our being conformed to his death is paradoxically the process in which we are being transformed into the image of Christ from one degree of glory to another in which the resurrected life of Jesus is being manifested in our mortal bodies. And so Paul closes this whole section. He says, and so somehow, no, he's not questioning that he's going to be resurrected from the dead. The question that he's asking is somehow means, I don't know the manner in which this is going to take place. I mentioned this in your notes. The way is unclear, but the end I fully know. You know, uh, <laughs> I know a prominent Bible teacher that said, well, I, I'm not sure I, I know I'm going to go to heaven when I die. Well, if you're seeing the righteousness of the Lord and you're basking in that, uh, I, I don't know what you have to worry about. It, it's what Christ has accomplished, right? That's what Paul's stating here. Thank goodness it's not on things that we do and what we don't do and, and clearly seen. Well, let me, let me give you three things to walk away with. 
As believers, we need to be careful. Watch the wording here. We need to be careful that the reason we do what we do for Christ is because we love Him, not so that He might love us. He already loves you as much as He could possibly love you. That's Ephesians 1. Hang that one on your beak. You're struggling with who you are in Christ or you have a a spouse or a child who's struggling with who they are in Christ, study Ephesians 1, right? This is how much the Lord has loved you. You you can't affect His love. He already loves you. He can be disappointed, yes, but that doesn't alter the love He has for you, right? And, And why we do what we do for Christ is not a bunch of rules and regulations because we love Him. That's why we do it. Ephesians 1, you can read that text later. Secondly, a career, a hobby, or even a ministry must, even a ministry, must not eclipse our passion to know Christ, right? I always love the scene with Mary and Martha in Luke chapter 10, all right? Uh, that's the, falls on the heels of the Good Samaritan parable. And it, it even, all of that springs from a discussion where Jesus asked the, the rich young ruler, you know, he said, uh, what's the greatest commandment? He says, well, it's to love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, Jesus illustrates loving the neighbor first, and then he comes to how do you love the Lord your God with all your heart in the story of Mary and Martha, right? And what's Martha? She's doing what you would expect of a Jewish woman in the first century. She's the hostess. She's the Martha Stewart of the, the first century, right? I mean, she's getting everything ready, and Mary is sitting at the feet of a rabbi, which was foreboding in the first century. She's not helping out. And she goes, you know the whole scene. Martha's, you need to tell Mary to get in here and help, which presumes upon the Lord. And he says, you are so concerned about everything else, you've missed me. And that is the danger, even of ministry, is missing. Wait a minute, what are we in this for? It's what I love about the guys that I serve with on this board. In our last meeting, you know, it's not about numbers. It's, it's not about money. It, it is so that Christ can be exalted. Uh, that, isn't that what it's about? Isn't that what we want, is to know Him, right? And Martha was so concerned about the chaos in the kitchen, the Creator was reclining in the other room, and she missed it. <laughs> Finally, joy comes not in the adversity, <laughs> Right? but in the recognition that the adversity is allowing us to grow in our knowledge of Christ. And some of you, you, many of you in this room are involved in church, in your local church or in parachurch ministries. And if you are, uh, you'll soon find, if you don't already, (laughs) it can be really ugly at times. It can be, there's some dark waters. Don't lose heart. Cling to what Paul's saying here. This is a great opportunity to know him. I've got a section called Further Thought. I don't often comment on that, but this is something you might want to do this week. I, I said, take some time evaluating your life. Is there an area that needs to be thrown to the rubbish heap? I challenge you to look at that in your own life. And you maybe want to read Colossians 3, but I want to close with a, a quote from Horatius Bonar, a pastor from years gone by. He says, The object of the Christian ministry is to convert sinners and to edify the body of Christ. No faithful minister can possibly rest short of this. Applause, fame, popularity, honor, wealth, all these are vain. If souls are not won, if saints are not matured, 
our ministry itself is in vain. And that's what Paul's seeking, to know Christ and, and, and to allow that to affect the ministry that he has. All those credentials, they are rubbish, right? Just a pile of poop. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. <clears throat> and this is a very convicting text. There's no doubt about it. It's so easy in our culture where we are, you know, uh, self-made men uh, seeking to, to have a successful career, to be known by X, Y, and Z, uh, to, to carry that performance base into our relationship with you and, and also into our ministries. Lord, help us not to allow that to eclipse the, the desire to know you and to recognize that all of this is because of what you have done for us. Nothing we have brought to the table. Lord, we love you. We thank you. Be with these men. Thank you for them. In Jesus' name, amen.